Thanks for coming. Welcome to Grand Rounds, May 23rd, 2018. Um, we are continuing our highlight of the year with our graduating residents. Um, and next week we have uh, Dr. Sarah Bingham wrapping up the month of May. And then finally into June. Um, you may have seen on the little commercial blurb, today is uh, iced coffee day in the state of New Hampshire and some of Vermont as well as Massachusetts. So um, proceeds from iced coffee sales at Dunkin' Donuts in those regions will end up being turned into a donation to us here at Chad. So I think it's going to be sunny and warm this afternoon. So a good excuse to stop there on your way home. And um, uh, uh, hopefully the weather stays good for your Memorial Day weekend, although the forecast wasn't so great. Um, my pleasure this morning is to introduce Dr. Jennifer Lappin, who's our Grand Round speaker, a native of Massachusetts, Acton Boxborough High School, and I dated myself in making high school hockey references. Um, Jen graduated with a Bachelor of Science uh, in Neurosciences summa cum laude from Brigham Young University in Utah, and subsequently completed her medical doctorate with honors at the University of Texas Medical Branch at Galveston, Texas, before joining us here for residency in 2015. She has um, a very um, provocative title on the precious child and the good mother as she is heading, as I've said, the the, th the trend has been our residents really talking about something that's um, meaningful for them, that's actually aligned with their career choices. And uh, um, Jennifer will also be heading to Cincinnati, as is Nadim, to Cincinnati Children's Medical Center for Fellowship in Developmental Behavioral Pediatrics. So, Dr. Lappin, you're up. Hello. Is that on? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's so sophisticated. Um, so first, I have no conflicts of interest to disclose, um, but I do have a disclaimer. Uh, my daughter is teething and decided that the night before Grand Rounds was the perfect time to intermittently cry all night. So if I don't make sense, just nod and smile. Um, my objectives for the, the talk today are to review the history of parenting advice or research over the 20th century until now, identify the current limitations or weaknesses of parenting research, examine the influence of modern media on parenting debates, identify the future of parenting research, and reflect on the pediatrician's role as a parenting expert. So why did I pick this controversial topic of parenting? From the age of 12 until medical school at 25, my primary source of income was childcare. Of all the families I worked with, one family stands out in particular. I cared for them off and on over the course of six years. As the two young toddler boys eventually joined by a sister aged, it became abundantly clear, even to me as a layperson, that something was clearly not right with the children, especially the boys. Now I would diagnose them all with a pretty severe presentation of autism. What is relevant to my talk was how the mother reacted to the situation of have, having three very atypically developing children. First, a bit of context. She mentioned several times that she was raised by very strict Eastern European parents whose kids were see, where kids were seen and not heard. She made it clear to me that she was determined not to be like them several times. Second, eventually she told me that she had taken her first boy to some sort of specialist when he was about a year old. 
He had initially had phenomenal language, i.e. he could say a lot of single words, but then seemed to be regressing. She implied to me that a diagnosis was made that she did not agree with and would not disclose. She never went back as far as I could tell. Her response to the situation was to desperately line her bookshelves with parenting books and give them every educational toy or media that she could find. I remember vividly watching my numbing hours of Baby Einstein and other educational TV. Over the years, I experienced firsthand her various adoptions of parenting philosophies. She often ended up taking an unconventional approach, which I often disagreed with, but said nothing. <laughs> However, this experience taught me several things. First, it opened up to me the complexities of parenting and the myriad of controversies in a very poignant way. It also clearly taught me that no matter how controversial a parent's philosophy is, almost all parents are trying to do as the best for their children. And finally, how much parents can cling to ex experts and the advice of others. I don't claim to be an expert on parenting. I've been a parent for three years, um, which I admit will bias my talk toward more early life issues. This is my son, Sam, who is three. That's my coat, um, because the great parent that I am, I didn't bring a coat for him, even though it's clearly very cold outside. <laughs> and he wanted to play in the igloos at the Montshire, so that's my coat. <laughs> and this is Hannah, my one-year-old, who cut me up last night. She's feeding herself, which is her favorite activity. I want you to note the full-size fork, how that she's naked, and the chunks of meat, and other choking hazards, all of, <laughs> all of which my mother-in-law disapproves of, and this is at her house. <laughs> um, I hope this infographic is not accurate, but it is from the Department of Agriculture. I put this in to remind us of one of the many stressors that modern parents are facing. So first, let's talk about the history of parenting. We are all familiar with the quote, those that learn to fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Trite as it is, it is applicable to the perennial parenting debates. My first objective is to show how we have been in actuality having the same argument over and over again with different players, each time thinking they are more enlightened than the generation before. <coughs> Although many of the debates, even from 1900, are surprisingly familiar, for example, for example, breastfeeding versus formula, there are some important factors to remember as we start. First, this is a graph of infant mortality in the United States, which includes all deaths within the first year of life, not just the first month. It was about 140 per 1,000, or 14% in the first year depicted. Sorry. Those of you who are parents, I want you to think about that for a minute. A 14% chance that your child would not make it to their first birthday. And this doesn't even take into account children who will die um, greater than one, which was also a common problem. If this graph was continued to today, it would be about 5.9 per 1,000. It's something that we tend to forget about here in America in 2018, but this was a daily reality for parents in the early 1900s. Second, women in the beginning of the last century, especially white women, this is, has admittedly been more a, um, a white woman phenomenon, had approximately double the number of children that we do now. In 1920, only one out of every six American child graduated from high school. Parents were not agonizing over preparing to get their chi child into the best college. Children were helping to provide for the family. My point in this slide and the two preceding it is, 
Perspectives about children and the advice surrounding them were very different when children were likely to not survive to adulthood, and if they did survive, were expected to contribute financially. As this has gradually shifted, attitudes about children have also shifted. What has been called the century of the child started very differently than it ended. I would like to start with a general timeline of the parenting experts I will review. You will notice that they were all doctors, all male, and in coming slides, all white. First, I note that the official study of child development is a relatively new field, and the first four parenting experts I address were really more child developmentalists who meandered into the world of parenting advice, which seems to be a common phenomenon. As you will learn, Dr. Spock, the fifth expert I discuss, and probably the only one on this list that most people have heard of, was not a child development developmental researcher. He started with a parenting book from the beginning, which changed the landscape of parenting advice. And the last person I will discuss is Dr. Brazelton, who people might also be familiar with, um, who was famous in the 1980s and 90s for teaching us to focus on the child's development, focusing parenting advice through the lens of a child's temperament and the child developmental stage. Finally, although neuroscience is not a person, our obsession with brain research and extrapolations from it became the base of our next wave of parenting advice. <coughs> Before I get into the parenting experts of the past, I would like to start with the following quote. It is a quote from the official report from the Conference of Modern Parenthood of 1925, published two years later, um, almost 100 years ago, and summarizing the state of child developmental research. It begins, the fruit of present research, it is to be feared, are not sufficient to maintain in scientific health the rapidly growing movement. In the very success of the childhood movement is the grave danger that the demand from various quarters, legislative, humanitarian, educational, journalistic, will so far exceed the supply provided by the slow process of research that the movement will escape the bounds of fact and wander off into the alluring jungle of easy generalization and overconfident dogmatism. The quote continues with this following line on my slide, which I think summarizes the quote. Science is asked to point the way, whereas yet there is no way, but the movement proceeds nonetheless. Unfortunately, I think this quote continues to be eerily true, especially when it comes to the realm of parenting advice. The first of our parenting experts is Dr. Holt, who was a pediatrician famous for writing The Care and Feeding of Children. The book started out as a guide for nurses at the children's hospital he worked at, but eventually became adopted as a parenting advice book. It was regimented and recommended strict feeding schedules. It also recommended to never play with your baby before month, four months old. That's to wait till they were six months old. He also recommended serving only the blandest and softest of foods to the child who had graduated to solids. He recommended that the mothers keep meticulous records of everything that their children do. He tended to view them as cool-headed semi-professionals. His major interest was on nutrition. It is easy to deride some of his advice now, but his concern for keeping children as physically healthy as possible made sense in his time when diarrheal illnesses were still a leading cause of childhood death in America. This is a quote from him at the third convention of the National Congress of Mothers at his talk called The Physical Care of Children. He said, time to dispense with those female relatives and friends whose knowledge is very limited, but whose prejudices regarding these matters are very strong and their conclusions not entirely to be depended on. <laughs> My mom would not like this quote. 
<laughs> this quote captures the sentiment of the times. Experts felt it was time to put a framework of science around an area that had historically been dominated by folklore. Dr. Hall was a contemporary of Dr. Holt and considered one of the fathers of the study of child development. But he also dispensed advice about parenting like Dr. Hall, where Dr. Holt was focused on babies, nutrition, and order, and very what we would call parent-centered. Hall's focus was child-centered and one of the first to focus on adolescents and the storms that they can often bring. He was one of the first advocates of this child-centered perspective instead of the more common parent-centered focus, i.e. getting a child to conform to your schedule and expectations. He focused on the child's own natural impulses and rich imagination as the best guide to his growth, promising inspiration to, in the process for mothers as well. As I stated previously, he was one of the first to focus on adolescents and what they needed, which had previously been largely ignored. He wrote a thousand page plus book about adolescents covering everything he could think of. It was supposed to be based on his research, but it was mostly based on his own opinions. He was in favor of letting teenagers find themselves, which seems pretty modern in a lot of ways. The next expert I will touch on is Dr. John Watson. He is known as the father of behavioral psychology. However, he also dabbled in parenting advice. He complained that prejudice against lab work with children was to blame for almost a bankruptcy of facts. However, his own research was similarly limited, as we will see in the next slide. He is famous for the Little Albert experiment. In this experiment, he and one of his students performed a series of experiments that on a nine-month-old baby named Albert over the course of 10 days. The researchers tried to get him to fear a rat by clanging a steel bar whenever the rat was present. They then tried to transfer this fear to other animals and even just a piece of fur. They then tested five days later to see if the aversion persisted and then another five days after that. Their experiment was cut short because he was ousted from John Hopkins for the affair he was having with the student he was working with. <laughs> From this limited study of one child, he claimed in his paper to have proved that conditioned emotional reflexes instilled early on persist and modify personality throughout life, which has clear implications for parents. Although this would never be approved by an IRB today, it was one of the first attempts to be systematic about the study of children. He later wrote The Psychological Care of Infant and Child, and these are two quotes from his book. First, never rock the baby. And second, won't you, which is my favorite, won't you then remember when you are tempted to pet your child that mother love is a dangerous instrument? In <laughs> um, it, he continued his extreme behaviorism and advocated what he called infant farms with rotating caregivers, although he knew it was not feasible, and he was known to try to shock his readers. But he was concerned that excessive affection or coddling from parents would not prepare children for the real world. Although pediatricians would not advocate refraining from physical affection, the debate over what is excessive hand-holding parenting continues today. The next expert I will talk about is Dr. Gessel. He studied normal babies in a large dome in Connecticut, pictured here, to see what was normal development for young children. He and his research assistants gave them various objects and basically saw what they did with them as they aged. A major cave caveat to his research was that they were all middle class white children from Connecticut. 
From his research, he extrapolated to parenting advice. He recommended that mothers become basically lay researchers of their children. He counseled them to constantly be monitoring their children's development on the periphery and provide an ideal environment for the child to learn and grow. He recommended to them, don't watch the clock, watch the child. However, in reality, mothers found it difficult to not compare their own child's development to his careful outlines of what was normal. Dr. Spock, like I said, is the first expert I've listed that almost everyone is familiar with, and the first that was not primarily a researcher or academic, although he dabbled in research. He was the first to truly be popular with the lay public and harness the power of the media. His first book was written in 1946, and in just the first six months, it sold half a million copies. There were nine editions in his lifetime. Although he eventually fell out of favor with parents, he was the reigning expert in the 1940s and 50s, and his influence continues to this day. In fact, a 10th edition is due to come out this October, 20 years after his death. Previously, experts had been convinced that through science they could dictate to parents what was best for their child. He was able to adopt a more middle ground. His books were not based on research, and study focused on the reassurance to parents, trust yourself, you know more than you think you do. He was not without controversy, and over the years, he became more authoritarian. Um, additionally, he added to the parental guilt that many feel if things do not go right for their child. A mother wrote to him, Don't you realize that when you always emphasize that a child basically wants to behave well and will behave well if he is handled wisely, you make the parent feel responsible for everything that goes wrong. Can't you see that a parent is a human being, too? I think that sentiment continues today. So this is Dr. Brazelton. I picked this picture because he looks adorable and loving. Um, he is another pediatrician, and he's famous for focusing on temperament, temperament of the child, temperament of the parents, and how they interact or mesh, or sometimes don't mesh. He also shifted the focus away from how the parents can shape the child to how the child, even from birth, is already starting to shape those around him or her and showcasing how much a newborn is capable of and how individualistic they are. He created an exercise now called the Neonatal Behavioral Assessment Scale, which is a 30-minute exam on newborns, which started with the baby asleep and then exposed the baby to different stimuli, such as bells and rattles and even a pin on the foot, to teach the parent about the child's personality or temperament and ability to regulate their emotions. The point of it was not to torture the baby, but to teach parents about their child's personality and wonderful capabilities, even as a newborn. He thought by teaching parents about how competent their babies are, it would help them feel competent themselves. His famous book for the public is Touch Points, where he walks parents through the common parenting challenges, but frames them in terms of normal child development. He tries to teach parents that by understanding what the child is going through developmentally, a parent can better respond in a helpful and sympathetic way. For example, at nine months, you would expect a sleep regression because babies are learning to be more mobile and anxious to practice their new skills, including pulling to stand in their crib. From the 1990s on, parenting advice became focused on the brain as the field of neuroscience took off. We have learned that the first three to five years are critical for child development and is the reasoning behind such services as early intervention and reach on and read. Unfortunately, the public movement moved far ahead of what could actually be proved and turned into an obsession. 
Marketers started and continue to take advantage of parental fears that if we do not have the right product or parenting intervention, we will miss this critical window. A prime example was the Baby Einstein videos that I referred to previously that promised to make your child smarter if you bought their products. Even with the lawsuit they had in 2009, they continue to be successful. Currently, the quest to make your child smarter has moved to apps, even though the AAP has a policy statement called Media in Young Minds, which cites the evidence suggesting that children under two are not able to learn from media well. I came across this advertisement for Neural, which is pictured, um, while on Facebook, procrastinating working on my grand rounds. <laughs> the music app or software promises to make your baby musically smarter and smarter in general, starting in the womb. Notice the pregnant belly on the right. And I thought it was a perfect example of how the brain mania has continued to 2018. It also, on their website, referred to research and took advantage of, challenge, of the challenge of the lay public to understand the nuances of research. Well, having your baby listen to music is obviously not bad. It showcases how parental fears are preyed on instead of letting parents give their children some pots and pans and let them go at it. <laughs> I assume most of us are familiar with the example of Romanian orphanages and other orphanages without enough resources and um, attention and love paid to young children and the terrible consequences that have followed in the development of the children involved. These clearly showed although they were obviously not a randomized controlled trial, that there is a level of parenting or adult interaction that children need to develop appropriately um, in the critical first five years. However, this has led many to think, if too little parental intervention is bad, then more must be better. Although others have argued that there was no evidence to support the contention that extra stimulation over and above what average North American children normally received resulted in smarter children, an emphasis on child cognitive development took hold and governments, corporations, and foundations invested heavily in programs with this aim. But like I said, we don't actually know that more is better. And as we've seen with parenting types, such as the tiger mom and the helicopter parent, etc., evidence is starting to accumulate to the contrary. For example, I found a study from the Journal of Genetic Psychology from this year analyzing young adults that identified having helicopter parents. They found they had fewer pro-social and empathic characteristics on a survey than other adults surveyed, although this is obviously cor correlational. In parenting, like most of life, anything can be taken to an extreme. There is a sweet spot for everything, and it is probably different for every child and every family. So I have a picture of the Goldilocks um, phenomenon which is what I was talking about. I was familiar with the idea of helicopter and tiger parenting from the media, but as I was researching for this presentation, I came across the concept of intensive mothering repeatedly. It was first defined in 1996 by the sociologist Dr. Hayes and focused on the idea of what has become the, quote, good mother in our culture. She defined good mothers as those that engage in child-rearing that is child-centered, expert-guided, emotionally absorbing, labor-intensive, and financially expensive, which is really true. <laughs> this is a picture of a chick hatching out of its egg. It is tempting to help a chick hatch that might be struggling, but if you do, you can sever arteries, expose the chick before the yolk absorbs, and not allow the chick to strengthen its legs and hips and ultimately cause the chick's death. I think this is a perfect illustration for a question I would like you to think about. Are all of our parenting intervention, the inventions, preventing children from growing for themselves and causing long-term problems? As you think about that question, 
I would like you to review the inherent complications that researchers have to try to address when they research parenting. The first is tr trying to evaluate for correlation versus causation, which can be a problem with any type of research, but is a particular problem with parenting research. For example, we know that breast milk has many compounds in it, and one of those compounds has been found to be DHA. Is DHA responsible for some of breast milk's superiority to formula? Now formula makers have latched onto it and started making formula with DHA and marketing it to parents as a better alternative. In addition, since parenting and interactions between child and their kids do not occur in a vacuum, the multifactorial nature of parenting and influences on families makes it difficult to tease out the influence of different factors. For example, and I know this has been touched on a lot recently, but it is a huge problem for a large percentage of our families, how is poverty contributing to the outcomes that we see in children? As an aside, even though more research is being done on the effect of poverty, parenting books for the public are still catering to the middle and upper class. Other variables to consider are adverse childhood experiences, ethnicity, single parent households, which have become increasingly common, relationship status of the parents, the community that the family lives in, the educational status of the parents, the quality of the schools they attend, the peer group, and the list continues. One variable I would like to emphasize is that like is what Brazelton also liked to emphasize, that children are part of the equation. They are not objects to be acted upon. The child's temperament or personality shapes and molds how parents parent. For example, some kids are, quote, easy, no matter who parents them, and some children will challenge even the most experienced parent. The standard two-parent um, class, middle-class Caucasian family, a father knows best, that was Kathy's reference, I didn't watch that show, obviously, <laughs> doesn't reflect current demography <laughs> of the U.S. Therefore, parenting research within our current heterogeneous population is challenging, and extrapolation to broad segments of society may be impossible from different studies that they do. So typically, the gold standard for a scientific research is a randomized controlled trial. However, it is challenging to do this type of research for many reasons, in parenting especially. Randomizing children in interventions has inherent ethical challenges and may be difficult for IRB approval. Real parenting is very messy and dynamic. It is hard to control for all the factors involved in raising a child. And there is a challenge to be able to extrapolate one parenting modality to all demographic groups. And finally, long-term follow-up is difficult. People don't just parent for a four-week intervention. Parenting is done over years and years, and it's difficult to fund and manpower a study that lasts for the decades that would be required to really see effect. Um, I admit this talk has been very American or Western-centric, but there's also the huge aspect of what role does culture play in parenting. What is acceptable in one culture versus not acceptable in another? Even in America, there are microcultures depending on where you live, your ethnicity, your socioeconomic status, religion, etc. Mean differences in parenting practices have been observed across nations as well. For example, mothers of preschool-aged children in China report higher levels of protectiveness, encouragement of modesty, and use of shame, along with lower levels of acceptance and democratic participation compared to mothers of preschool-aged children in the United States. I admit I have only read two parenting books, cover to cover, beside many blogs, which are The Duck Take Parent by Vicki Hoffel and his companion book, which I would highly recommend, if a little hokey. But even this great parenting book does not address children with disabilities at all. 
More research is being done about children with disabilities or serious behavioral problems, but there is still a lot of stigma and they are still largely ignored in research and parents unjustly criticized. I think this is a funny picture, anyone who likes friends, but seriously, what about the role of peers? You can parent all you want, but starting around age five or earlier if your kid is in daycare, your child is surrounded by peers for more hours a day than he or she is with you. This is something that is difficult to control for and often ignored when talking about parenting interventions. And one of the major reasons, whether people will admit it or not, people will pay big bucks to be in certain schools or neighborhoods. There was a book written in 1998 by Judith Harris called The Nurture Assumption, Why Children Turn Out the Way They Do, which basically argued that child research up to that point was weak, which is probably true, and it had assumed rather than proved the notion that parents are not the most, are, parents are the most important part of the child's environment and can determine to a large extent how the child turns out. She felt instead that it was peers. She didn't really have any evidence either, but we are very aware how influential a peer group can be or the lack of it. Just look at the long-term effects of bullying on children. The role of siblings, birth order, etc., are hugely influential on a child's development. It is also fallible to assume that parents parent their children the same. Just look at the Bible story of Joseph and his brothers and what happened there. What about fathers? You who are parents, think how you parent. Now think how your child's other parents or parent might parent. <laughs> from my, sorry, <laughs> not enough sleep. From my, own experience, from my own experience, my husband and dad parent very differently than me or my mom. Is this intrinsic to gender, our different experiences, the way we ourselves are parented? How do you think men may parent differently than women? Fathers are largely ignored by parenting books. Even books that use the word parent still are catering to women. Also, even academic research does not involve them nearly as much as women. They're often a fraction of the parents if they're involved at all. Same-sex couples have also been largely ignored in research and parenting books, although this is changing. In summary, I have given you some examples of why parenting research is inherently challenging, including the time and other social factors that need to be considered. A newer challenge involves the role of modern media in the parenting debates. Before, Media was confined to books and newspapers and television, and voices were limited to those who were in a certain position. For example, you had to have a publisher agree to publish you or have a certain amount of money. Now, with the explosion of the internet, anyone can broadcast their parenting views, no matter what their level of expertise and education, and gain a substantial following. As pediatricians, we cannot ignore this influence. You know when a parent comes in asking a question, they have probably already Googled it. Some of what they read is based on science, some on expert opinion, and some on a combination. It can be hard for the parents of our patients to sift through it all at three o'clock in the morning when their baby won't stop crying. I wanted to focus on two parenting questions that media is influencing parents about. I may have chosen these because I still have young children. The first is the perennial debate of how to get your child to sleep through the night, and the second are the feeding wars. First, I would like to share this quote from The Guardian. It was written about parenting books, but it also applies to many of the blogs available today. He said, every baffled new parent goes searching for answers in baby manuals, but what they really offer is the reassuring fantasy that life's most difficult questions have one right answer. Does anyone know what this is a picture of? <laughs> Kathy had to expose me to this. <laughs> What? No, better than that. 
It's a snoo smart sleeper. So to me, it looks like he's in a straitjacket, but it's a crib that was patented by Dr. Karp, a famous pediatrician who was a staunch advocate for swaddling, and it cost $1,200 to buy this crib, and in return for almost a whole resident's paycheck, your baby will sleep through the night as they are gently rocked to sleep by their motorized crib, at least until they grow out of the straitjacket, will we'll probably be in a couple months. <laughs> As you look for sleeping advice, you can easily find hundreds of blogs advocating everything from co-sleeping to a more hardline, ignore them until they stop crying. And they are not just blogs, it is Facebook posts, etc. Before, people just talk to their local circle of friends, but now people they do not know at all will chime in as a post grows. When my own perfect angel Hannah was having sleeping difficulties as a newborn, I realized that there is this great fear felt by many parents that sleep training was going to cause irreparable harm, starting with rising cortisol levels and then just go downhill from there. And it wasn't only a fear, people declared it and accepted it as a fact on the internet. And everything on the internet is true. <laughs> However, research has started to show that letting your baby cry doesn't actually cause increased cortisol levels as feared and does not appear to have long-term ill effects. Although, of course, this research is still not perfect and relatively new, modern media makes it hard to have nuanced conversations and instead draws people into opposing polarized camps. The second example I want to talk about are the feeding wars. Breast versus bottle, organic versus non-organic, first foods, baby led weaning, which I didn't know was a thing until someone um, was asking me how I was feeding my child at interviews, and she's like, oh, you're doing baby led weaning. I'm like, I didn't even know that was a thing, but I guess I am. <laughs> and what do you do with a picky toddler, which I have now? The advice that you may have received 20 years ago is now amplified logarithmically through social media. Everyone has advice and everyone posts. It's hard to suit out, sort out truth from fake news, and it's even harder as a parent to sort through the myriad of possibilities. Focusing on breast versus bottle, it goes both ways. Mothers are ashamed for breastfeeding in public, but they're also ashamed for formula feeding at all. The pressure of social media may drive comparisons that are not realistic and set parents up for failure. Now, where is parenting research headed? Genetics is definitely the wave of the future and something that was obviously lacking in most of the 20th century research. We can't ethically do the kind of RCT experiments we do in a lot of other branches of pediatrics. We have now mostly settled the nurture versus nature debate and now recognize it as a combination and interplay of the two. Even the twin studies that some of us learned about in psychology class have become much more nuanced and sophisticated. Although what shows most promise is the study of epigenetics. For those of, who are not familiar with this, it is a heritable change of genes that does not involve a change in the DNA sequence itself. I found a fascinating article in Psychopathology reviewing animal research done studying the epigenetic, epigenetic changes that occur in different parts of the brain based on separation from the mother at different days of life. It did make me feel a little guilty about sleep training Hannah so young. As genetics and statistics continue to advance, we can hopefully start getting a little closer to some of the answers we've been looking for, although they also thought that at the beginning of the 1900s. So what is our role as a pediatrician of all this? I have shown a little bit about the history of parenting research, some of the inherent challenges of this research, the role of media, and the future of research. So what's your role? How many of you have been chased down at a barbecue by a harried parent and asked what your opinion is on how to deal with temper tantrums or what you think of such and such controversial new parenting trend? Is anybody? <laughs> how many of you received formal education on parenting interventions? Anyone? Reading bright futures quickly, if they ask you a question, doesn't count. 
You're going to be asked whether you like it or not, and you're considered an expert whether that's warranted or not. This is one of our roles as pediatricians. We can help parents navigate the minefield of parenting advice and be frank with them. Where is there evidence to support a practice, and where is there, frankly, not any evidence or only correlation? We can also educate about typical childhood development to help parent families have a better expectation of what to expect at certain ages. This is a quote comes from Dr. Spock once he became a little more cynical, but I think it's an important idea to focus on. He said, we are uncertain about how we want our children to behave because we are vague about our ultimate aims for them. This quote instantly reminded me of Alice's experience with the Cheshire cat in Alice in Wonderland. She asked, would you tell me please which way I ought to go from here? That depends a good deal on where you want to get to, said the cat. I don't much care where, said Alice. Then it doesn't matter where, which way you go, said the cat. As pediatricians, we can help parents delineate what their goals are for their children. Is it to be happy? What do they mean by that? Is it to live to their full potential? What do they mean by that? Is it to get into an Ivy League and have a six-figure income? Or is it just to get them to stop whining and get out the door already because you're 10 minutes late? <laughs> and this, on that note, here's Hannah eating only organic fruits and vegetables. <laughs> Any questions? questions from parents since prior to the social media era. Is it harder, as we might assume, easier? What's, has there been a change in terms of what questions you get? First off, you did a great, great job. Thank you. And the way I start off, like with all these eating issues and sleeping issues, yada, 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 is what do you want to do? Mm -hmm. As a parent, what do you and your partner want to do? What do you want to accomplish? Mm -hmm. And then I go from there. Because as you said, there's no right or wrong way. It's what they want to do and they're comfortable with. Because then they're going to be happy, the baby's mm -hmm. going to be happy, and life will be so much better. But the media, we, I mean, the media could be a whole day or a week conference. <laughs> and the influence on children and parents. So do you find that conversation is different since social media with Facebook and all the advice they're getting than it might have been 15 years ago? I Patricia had her hand up first. My question was about mental health and uh -huh. how you know, there's just lots, I guess I would say lots of evidence, but maybe there's not. I feel like I haven't seen like a specific article about it, so I was wondering if you came across anything with like specific parenting strategies and how that affects our adolescents' mental health, because we've seen a rising rate of depression and anxiety, and does that have anything to do with a specific type of parenting strategy? They've been doing a lot of research about how that the over-parenting, which is kind of a judgmental term for it, like whether that's leading to anxiety, and they're finding some preliminary like associations, but I think the research is still kind of out as far as what the long-term implications are, like what is going to happen when these kids are in their 50s, and have been, had, had their mother do their bills for them. And, <laughs> I need my mother to do that. 
thank you, Jen. That was fantastic. Um, you mentioned that we are considered experts, mm -hmm. um, like it or not. Most of us who go through training, some people already have children when they start mm -hmm. their residency. I think most of our residents do not have children. Um, and we're thrust into this role of being parenting experts, even from the time you hit your internship. Mm -hmm. From an educational standpoint, what is it that we could do better to teach all of us how to deliver parenting advice or how to um, uh, guide a new parent in some of their parenting challenges? Um, I think more of an emphasis should be placed on it in general. I think it's a lot of times like one little burb you get about it and then it's kind of just like under the table. Let's focus on the medical problems, but making that more um, a formalized curriculum like we've done here, but we still work in progress with the TEACH program. Uh, are, are what pediatrician, you know, you folks mm -hmm. perceive as expert parents in your own practices, are they ever invited to come talk to residents and give expert advice? I don't think so. Have they, Kathy, in the Anybody recently, we try to get the residents. I try to send them out when um, the family place will often have parenting talks, um, trying to get them out. I think Nina, from looking at you, how much do you do in the context of your development rotation? Um, I, I know we get them out into the community. Not many cases where parents get parenting advice, but it's not a formalized curriculum for sure. Well, perhaps the residents could provide free babysitting for. Yeah, <laughs> I've done enough of that. <laughs> Intensive. We've started <laughs> doing that in the Q and A with that. Right. Yeah, you guys have done that. And then we have done our gap group has now, um, thanks to Amy, has put us on a schedule kind of three to four times a year, and we've spent three sessions now um, talking about parenting challenges. We did infants, toddlers, and school age kids so far. Um, just some of the common questions that parents answer. But I will be perfectly honest. I am no expert in parenting. You can ask my two teenage children. <laughs> You know, Trisha obviously is now biased towards younger kids. Whenever I have a parenting challenge, I go to her for advice. But it's not that any of us were formally trained in parenting methodology either. There is a family faculty, and mm -hmm. we have some really satisfaction that this That's really focused on chronic um, health conditions, chronic, chronic, yeah, family with chronic health conditions, how, how that impacts. But it is an, it's an interesting suggestion about expert parenting. For, from a separate perspective. I, I think it would be an enormous compliment, right, to if you had a, a family that you've known for years and they saw their child through a particularly difficult phase and you recognize that and you said to them, you know, you're, they're not an expert in every aspect of parenting, nobody is, but they did something really well and you could select, you know, six of those at different developmental stages. That would put together a collection of examples. But there's no perfect answer to all the situations, but... There are pretty cool things that people came up with on their own, and that, that both strengthens that family and also shares some cool stuff. So kind of taking off on what Bridget is saying, how about, like, for instance, like a talk like this, you could have maybe a panel of parents come up and share their story. They've got a captive audience right, right here, mm -hmm. so it won't just be limited to the residents. We all, nurses, social workers, nutritionists, we all would kind of benefit from that. Um, but, you know, just, just a thought that, you know. 
Square Valley. Idea. Yeah. How much of the literature in the parent education that you looked at accounted for um, parent illness and mental health and sort of adapting the curriculum or what we're um, going to be educating them on? Mm -hmm. That because I think some of the literature I've certainly seen is like this very standard, this is what you should do, when you should do it. And if we look at the parents and the families that are presenting to us, how much of that is reality for them, where it's just mm -hmm. kind of... Yeah. I did do some reading about like the, the perspective of like parents with disabilities, parents in poverty, which I ended up cutting out. But they're definitely they're not included as much as they should be. Um, they started trying to include them in like parenting interventions that have been proven like the early years and like triple positive whatever triple p parenting um but they re it's really they're ignored i think a little more than they should be because they're the ones that probably need it the most <laughs> i'm just sort of piggybacking on what kathy was talking about in terms of a lot of our residents don't have children but in, in boosting their self-confidence a bit that you don't have to have a child to be a person that can give advice to families and one of the best sort of things that we have the opportunity to do is in talking to all these different families and patients, we can ask them what they use for parenting styles and take that knowledge and kind of bank it and be able to pass it on to other families. So there's lots of ways to get parenting tips and knowledge without being a parent yourself. And um, so I just encourage people to, to use that tool really um, wisely because it's very helpful. Even if you're a parent or not, you're like, oh, that's a great idea they're using. And just letting people know there's a variety of things that they could be doing. So. So totally piggybacking off of that now. I feel like my best parenting strategies come from someone else. We'll yeah. come from Sarah Stearns, who you guys may or may not know. She happens to not have any children herself. And I feel like I'm saying this to like empower anyone. Because I remember being a resident and being frustrated that people, it had definitely been mentioned to me that I would be a better pediatrician once I had children. And it's totally not the case. I think that, if anything, it just biases you. It definitely does. And I feel like it's actually really nice to get an objective observer to tell you how to parent your child, or at least give you what their intelligent outside perspective is. Um, so I guess my other question would be like to somehow build that into the curriculum to work with someone. Um, I feel like if there's anything that I wish I had more background in, it's child psychology. Yeah, well. <laughs> uh, I was sort of piggybacking, and I, I just remember one time Todd Perrett telling me that sort of the exact perspective that Trisha just shared that you know don't shortchange yourself because you're not a parent you're the you're a blank slate and you're really able to be objective and sort of draw in all this information from other people. Um, and he said he was he was glad he didn't have kids when he started training because he was sort of able to do that for a period of time. But at this I don't know if this is really a question or a comment as I'm thinking about my current inpatient service. Um, we have a group of individuals who are struggling to parent children with complexity of all age groups, basically. Um, and I think it's challenging for the team. It's challenging for the the people caring for, for the patients because the primary issue is sort of figuring out how to parent these kids. Um, and I think we all know that there's sort of a dearth of resources around to help parents, particularly of kids with any kind of medical complexity or disability. Um, and I guess sort of questions or thoughts are how do we advocate for more of those resources and where do those resources lie? I mean, I think like in the outpatient setting, you guys refer to Sarah Stearns. Who else? <laughs> Is there She's still working. So, Nina, you can help tie in with me. 
because right now the Women's Health Resource Center has a lot of resources and parenting classes. The family place is like my go-to 100% all the time because they have a lot of parenting classes um, and a lot of parenting support. When Dr. Stearns was here, she's also started a program called Helping the Parenting the Non-Compliant Child, which some versions of it still exist at West Central, correct? Yes. And West Central and not so much here. And then there's a group of private therapists, including here, who work specifically on parent-child interactions. And again, I'm looking at you for experts. Yeah, so there's something called parent-child interaction therapy. Um, that there are some, um, at West Central, there are some people trained in that specifically. The Special Needs Support Center here also runs some sort of not in a regular predictable way, but has some specific parent, like parenting classes for children with special needs and um, classes for siblings of children with special needs, which is um, another area that often is pretty challenging um, for parents who have more than one child if they're pending, you know, if all their attention is on the child who has special needs and how that other child gets a little bit forgotten. Um, the Family Place runs, has programs there, but they also, in terms of things like what Carlin was mentioning, sort of three times a year they do a big program that's held here that usually brings in a parenting expert. And so I think, you, I think we should make sure that we pay attention to when those things are going on and really sort of putting up flyers and making sure that all our families know that the, that there are sort of constant little things going on, but you really have to be paying attention to knowing that they're happening. My sort of follow-up to that is, do you guys find that when you refer to those kinds of programs, people are accepting of those referrals, or do you find that there's generally like some level of pushback or feeling that you're being critical of them? Or? So I think it's it's hard and, and it's important to frame it in the right way that um, that the way I usually frame it is by saying, you know, that all children are, you know, difficult and we try to use um, that some with kids that are a little more than typically difficult when you try to use those common sense parenting techniques and they don't always work you need um, an extra hand and and sort of making it seem like perhaps their child is more difficult than the typical that the, and that they've tried the things that all parents try and that didn't work and so maybe they need a little bit of extra help from sort of someone who works with kids who are more than averagely difficult I think um, you know, it goes both ways. I think parents are looking for information all the time, and at the same time, everybody feels like they know how to be a parent. And so it, 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 um, I think that dichotomy is stressful for people. Um, and certainly when they end up in a situation where they do maybe have a more than typically complicated child, um, feeling like um, we wouldn't expect you to know what to do in this situation is, I think, a good way to phrase it. I think, Sam, to your point, it depends on, I, I can see your question going one of two ways. Do people want my unsolicited parenting advice for typically developing children? No, not really. But once they get to me and say, I'm really having trouble with this child, and they are fairly accepting of the resources that I have to offer. The example I have right now, I'm working with a family. Um, they have two older kids who are 12 and 14 right now, lovely kids, and they adopted a baby at six weeks of age who is, quite frankly, a holy terror. And it is, who knows whether it's epigenetics, but she's like, I adopted her at six weeks. I mean, we got the nurture part down. I know how to parent. And I saw her and she goes, I know how to parent. This is ridiculous. And nothing is working. And so that parent is really engaged in trying to find some parenting resources because, as Nina put it, this child is not typical. I mean, she's smart. She's funny. She's a not, you know, doesn't have developmental delays, but she is really challenging behaviorally. Um, and the mom was like, I, 
I did this already. I got this. I want to parent a toddler. And it's just not working. So she's very excited to go to some parenting classes. I have a quick question. Back to the parent-child interaction therapy and all the other therapies you mentioned, Nina. Is that something that you can put EDH or do you have to make a call to somebody? Does it have to come through the pediatrician? So, because I'm always, as working in specialty, I'm always very leery about addressing more general issues. I'm trying to stick to my little world. But if something comes up in the visit, like the mom says, I am so frustrated, da 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 da. And, you know, and she's kind of open to some suggestion like that. Is that something that you call about, or do you, can you put it in EDH, or how would, how, would, how, would, how would I go about that, for instance? I mean, I think, um, depending on your relationship with the family, it's nice to engage the primary <clears throat> care provider in sort of making sure that they know that that's going on with the family and giving them the opportunity to sort of be a part of the decision about where it would be best to send the, send the child. I think being in specialty, you're not always seeing people that are just from the Upper Valley, and so it's accessing researchers in, you know, in Manchester and in Laconia and in Keene, and, um, and local, the local providers often know of who's really good in their area. Um, and I think that sometimes families need to be encouraged to talk about it with their, their primary care provider, even though, as we just discussed, we don't have, you know, the primary care providers don't necessarily have all the answers. I think that they often will kind of be connected to resources in their community and be able to kind of provide ongoing support to that family, maybe separate from the well-child checks. I think sometimes people only bring everything up when they come in for a well-child check, and it's nice to sort of separate those visits out and say, well, why don't you just come in and talk about sleep, or why don't you just come in and talk about the challenging behaviors and sort of encouraging the families to sort of do that and then for you to reach out you know to make sure in your note that you sort of suggest in the to the primary care provider I'm sending them back to you to discuss these um, these concerns because you don't have time to sort of spend on that yeah I am I always appreciate these talks because I realize how I never meet your own I see parents that don't know how to parent, but they don't seem to know that they don't know how to parent. Nor do they actually care that they don't know how to parent. It's not their fault, it's just the way they were not parented. So I think going to Sam's question, my parents always say no to anything I offer. But one name that hasn't been mentioned right now is the TLC Family Resource Center in um, Claremont, and they do have and they will they have people that go in a home which for a lot of parents i think one reason they say no is i just don't have time and i've got three other kids or whatever and if someone said to me right now do you go to this class three times a week i would say i can't so um they do have homes people that come in and teach a lot of things um but it, i find it very difficult to get parents to say yes the only caveat to the tlc program is the patient needs to have medicated well, and again, this is the only thing. Sorry. The best scenarios are the ones that trigger the most uh, active discussion. So you. you've made it, Jen. Thank you. Thank you.